the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hey friends, welcome to The Common Good here on AIM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, so glad to have you with us today. A major moment in my life that I want to share. Yesterday, for I think for good, I deleted Facebook off of my phone. I wonder if any of you have done that. Uh, I wanted to, it, it ties into something Aubrey and I spent time talking about yesterday, but I couldn't believe it. In uh, I went home yesterday, I was relaxing with my family, I uh, had my phone out, was looking at Facebook, and all of a sudden I realized my entire Facebook feed uh, was not just about the masks and school, but people just trying to rally the troops on one way or another. And it was so divisive and so uh, argumentative and so many parents and they started new groups and we're going to, we're going to get our kids to get suspended or whatever else it might be. The public school where I'm at, uh, they have not changed their policy on masks right now. And friends, I know this is a huge deal. If you've listened to this show at all, you know that I would like to see our kids not in masks. I'm happy that we're moving in that direction. But uh, a little bit of civility will go a long way right now. And a little bit of uh, recognizing that our kids are watching our, our posture right now. Uh, and that doesn't mean don't reach out to your schools. That doesn't mean... Uh, don't make your voice heard at the school board, but maybe it does mean don't use your kids as pawns to try to, to stir up trouble. And that's what I saw going on Facebook last night. And I was like, I'm done. I finally turned to my wife and I said, I can't do Facebook anymore. So we'll see how long that lasts. Uh, but off of it, I went, I'm not the only one. In fact, last month it was reported that for the first time in their history, uh, Facebook lost uh, they, they declined in users from one month to a next. And so I think a lot of us are at that same point going, I just can't do this anymore. And that kind of plays in nicely uh, to an article I was seeing over at Church Leaders, and it was about Beth Moore. Uh, Beth Moore was addressing just kind of uh, the way she's talked about. And Beth Moore, uh, if you're unaware of her, she recent, she for years has been in the Southern Baptist Convention, just recently left within the last couple of years, left the Southern Baptist Convention. I believe now she's in the Episcopal Church. Beth Moore is a prolific author, prolific writer, speaker, all sorts of things. And she is the founder of Living Proof Ministries. And she went to Twitter the other day and she said this. It seems if you're a watchdog for the church, you get to bite at will. You're somehow above the ethics of Jesus. You will answer to the Lord for spreading misinformation. She said, I'm concerned about your spiritual condition because here's what I know. The Holy Spirit convicts of sin. Later on, she went on to say slander, cyber stalking and smearing people's reputations are sins. If you don't have conviction of sin, it's not because your wrongs are all right with God. It's because something is awry inside of you. And then she went on to talk about um, a, a time in her life a couple years ago uh, where she was talked about at a conference. And you might remember um, it, it got to be somewhat personal. And Beth Moore talks about how she said uh, this kind of spread all over the Internet. I kind of was expecting an apology 
and it never came. She was called a narcissist and some other things. And she talks about how personally difficult that was for her, because at the time that was from within her own denomination. And here's the deal. She it had to do much about uh, women preaching, women pastors, all this stuff. That was the dialogue. And she was kind of the talking point about it. But the the conversation about her at this conference by these men was uh, it, it hurt her deeply. And, and her point being, can we disagree and not become slanderous. Can we disagree online or in public and not? And some people might be like, no, the theology here is too important about whatever it is you're talking about. Uh, that tone does not matter. That uh, personal attack does not matter. But with the rise of social media and the way things are going now, uh, what you're seeing in Christendom and evangelicalism in the Christian social media subculture uh, is a a biting, is a tension, is a um, a way of speaking that I'm not sure we ever accepted before. Daniel Darling, uh, who has been at the center of a lot of this stuff in his own right as well, uh, he tweeted this. Uh, he retweeted somebody else had written, I truly don't understand those who downplay the importance of tone and Christ-like behavior online. Sure, you could disagree profoundly with someone, but our words and deeds say something about who Christ is and what he is like. Uh, and so he went on uh, to retweet that and to say this. He said, Daniel Darling, he said, this is so true. You know who cares about tone, he asks? God does. Scripture tells us over and over again about the impact and the shape of our words. And he says, Psalm 19, James 3, etc. And that's where I kind of want to get us at to right now. As Christ, I'm only speaking to the Christ follower right now. I'm not speaking to the people I described on Facebook before who may not be Christ followers. I'm not speaking in, but to the Christ follower. When you speak of other people, and maybe in this case, especially people that you're going to spend eternity with, right? Uh, nobody was doubting the salvation of Beth Moore in this conversation. When we're talking about brothers and sisters in Christ, or when we're talking about people who may not, may not be followers of Jesus, but whom we disagree with, what do you think? Does tone matter? <clears throat> Does civility matter? Does respectfulness matter? Does how we talk about something, uh, is it as important about even what we say? See, I would tell you, I believe it is. But that, that I think this is a losing battle right now within the church. I see a tweet a day, at least, where people say, now's the time to take the gloves off. Now's the time to be harsh. And there is kind of these camps right now in, in the Christian world of people just lobbing grenades. And it's not even the progressives and the conservatives. It's like on my stuff, it tends to be the progressives, the conservatives and the really conservatives. Right. And we're lobbing things at each other and we've lost civility. And what I want us to know is that uh, people are watching. They're getting their idea of what it does it mean to be a Christian by not just so much what Christians are saying, but how Christians are acting and how they are speaking. And that was kind of Beth Moore's point here. That's Daniel Darling. Some of you out there might think, nope, that's the wrong conversation to be having right now. Right now, we need to stand up for truth. We need to be standing up for our freedom, our rights. We need to be standing up for exactly what we believe Scripture says or whatever else it might be. I would disagree with you. I think those things are important. 
But what we stand up for also has to be mixed with how we stand up for it, whether it be online, on a, on a conference stage, from a pulpit, whatever else. Again, I quoted him yesterday, but our friend Jim Dennison wrote a book about this. He called Respectfully, I Disagree, the importance of civility, uh, basically, in the Christ follower. So uh, I read that article and that tweet, and I said, yeah, you know, that's important. How do I talk about people to them, about them, behind their back, whatever else it might be? The Bible says a lot about that. Go read the book of James. Well, along the same lines, uh, I want to talk about hypocrisy. Uh, hypocrisy in our politicians, in celebrities. But then I want to turn the mirror on us and go, what What about hypocrisy in the church? What effect does that have on the gospel of Jesus Christ? We're going to talk about that with a story from politics next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today. We're used to our politicians uh, on both sides of the aisle, uh, not necessarily living up to what they say they're going to do. And again, I think this is equal opportunity between the left and the right. So uh, just because I'm going to talk about a Democrat here, uh, I, I don't I, I do think this is kind of equal opportunity. All right. Nancy Pelosi. I'm reading this out of The New York Post. Nancy Pelosi spent almost five hundred thousand dollars on private jets despite climate preaching. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has shelled out nearly five hundred thousand dollars for private flights since October of 2020, despite her claims that the U.S. has, quote, a moral obligation to address climate change. The California Democrats campaign paid Virginia-based advanced aviation team a total of $423,000 to travel services on 10 different occasions. And it goes on to kind of give the exact total and what she did. Uh, Now, uh, earlier, in fact, during this time, Pelosi had said this, I believe this is God's creation and we have a moral obligation to be good stewards. At the same time, private jets produce more carbon dioxide emissions than commercial airplanes per passenger. According to June analysis by the European group Transport and Environment, they went on to say flying on a private jet is probably the worst thing you can do for the environment. And yet super rich, super polluters are flying around like there's no climate crisis. Uh, Pelosi came under fire last September after she said working with China on climate change should take precedent over Beijing's human rights abuses. They go on in this story to talk about John Kerry, who also uh, was going to climate conferences in in a private jet and and why he said that was necessary. There's always that story of that climate um conference. I believe it was in France. I might be getting that wrong a couple of years ago with many celebrities and politicians and the airport just being lined with private jets. And the point being, uh, if you really believe this, then live it out. Uh, if you really believe this, then don't do the thing that the climate people are saying is probably the worst thing you can do for the environment, which is flying a private jet. I understand the difficulties of the Speaker of the House flying coach or flying even first class on commercial flight. But what message would that send? What ability would that be to say, hey, I have the ability to fly uh, a private jet. But for the sake of the environment, I want to live out what I'm saying I believe. And therefore, I'm going to inconvenience myself and do this. And yeah, again, if you're if you're someone who doesn't like Nancy Pelosi, you're probably going, amen, point the finger. But 
both sides here. Uh, we could spend a show listing the hypocrisy of the Democrats. We can spend an entire show listing the hypocrisy of the Republican politicians. Uh, but here's what ends up happening. When somebody like me, who doesn't really understand the climate discussion very well, but I try to learn and I try to read, hears and sees the very people who are most pushing it not seeming to make a difference and in their own lifestyle, I think to myself, maybe it's not real. See, that's what happens. When we see hypocrisy in people who are who are the mouthpieces for it, then we go, well, they must not believe it. Therefore, they must know something about this. It must not be true. Uh, let me liken this before we just point fingers at other people. Let me liken this uh, to what often happens in the church. Friends, I would suggest that more than our theology, it is often our hypocrisy and our lifestyle that pushes people away from considering the claims of Jesus. It is oftentimes a theological discussion. Don't get me wrong. This isn't 100% one way or the other. But I do believe that it is the lives of the Christ followers that are often either attracting or repelling people uh, from their desire to either um, – Consider the claims of Jesus or not. Russell Moore wrote last week or a couple of weeks ago at Christianity Today uh, about Jerry Falwell Jr. being a cautionary tale for cultural Christianity. Remember the story we talked about where Jerry Falwell Jr. was quoted in a Vanity Fair article basically saying, even though he was the president and the chancellor of the largest evangelical Christian school in the country, he said uh, people assumed he was a Christian and a religious person because of his last name. But then he said, I'm not. Uh, my goal is to re- make them realize I'm not my dad. Uh, and again, Russell Moore's point is this is the problem with cultural Christianity of people saying I'm a Christian in name for whatever reason it might be, uh, rather than just saying, uh, rather than actual living out. But uh, let me, let me make this personal here. I'm a pastor. I'm on the radio, whatever else. Uh, I'm a dad and a husband. And I also know that. So in my kid's life, if they see me saying one thing to them and then living a completely different way, that is the quickest way to torpedo my kid's um, desire to follow Jesus and to uh, they're, they're watching. They're watching. Now, this does not mean that we have to live perfectly. OK, we, that's never going to happen. But you know what it does mean? When we fail, we admit it and we say, hey, I'm really sorry or we make changes in our own life. Man, what I am doing right now or what I'm doing on a regular basis is not uh, shining a, a great light on the faith that I claim. So I need to make a change. I think first is accepting the fact that if you claim Jesus as your Lord and Savior, thou you are his disciple, you are his ambassador, you are his representative. We are called Christ's ambassadors. And friends, uh, when Paul calls us Christ's ambassadors, here's what he's saying. An ambassador is a representative of the king. They are a representative of the Lord. So that means that by title, we are speaking and representing Jesus to the world around us. And if that feels pressure filled, it should. 
But that's also an opportunity that I might not have the right words, but in the way I love my neighbor and the way I love my family and the way I treat people or what we just talked about before the last break, the way I speak about people and to people, that it looks so different. The hope that I have, the joy that I have, the perspective that I have, uh, the, the respect I show other people, all of this is so different from the world's around, world around us that it, that it represents Jesus well and causes people to say, I kind of want that. I, I kind of want that. I find that interesting. Friends, you, if you are a Christ follower, you are an ambassador of Christ. That is your number one descriptor, your number one calling, your number one mission. And we have got to take that seriously. What does my life say? Uh, what does my life say about uh, the faith that I claim? I know I'm challenged by that every day, and hopefully you are today uh, as well. Well, coming up next, talking about sharing the gospel. How can we become more equipped in sharing the gospel in a really relational way? We're going to talk about that through a tweet from Pastor Ray Ortland next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey everybody, welcome back to The Common Good. AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, flying solo today. My co-host, Aubrey Sampson, she'll be back tomorrow. Looking forward to that. But until then, you and I spending the day together here. Glad that you're spending some time with me. Uh, Ray Ortland uh, was a pastor and he's written many books and he's just an influential pastor in the sense that he also mentors a lot of younger pastors and he's just a, a good voice. So, uh, Ray Ortland has also gotten to be pretty active on Twitter, and he wrote this just the other day, and I thought it worth our time. Ray Ortland wrote, Christian arguments for the gospel come in three primary forms. Number one, clear and convincing lines of reasoning, the intellectual. Two, inspiring courage in an individual, the moral. And three, Beautiful and alluring community, the relational. And he goes on to say that the church he's a part of now, he's seen the real power of number three, the relational. But those are, in his words, Christian arguments for the gospel, right? The intellectual, I can convince you of this. It makes sense. Let me tell you the story of the gospel. Let me tell you the problem of sin. And let me tell you the the person and work of Jesus Christ, the intellectual, the reasoning, and number two is look at that person's life, the moral, look at their courage, look what they did for Jesus, look what Christ has done in their life. But then there, Ortland says there is the relational, the beautiful and alluring community. Basically this, look at these people who have nothing in common. And now look at what they're doing. Look at the love and the bond that they have for one another. And the only thing, the only answer to that is Jesus. There's nothing else that should bond them together except their shared belief in Jesus Christ. It's black and white, rich and poor, young and old, uh, rural and city, whatever else it might be. Look at the unity. Look at the beautiful and alluring community, as he calls it, the relational. And that's that unity that's described in John chapter 17, right? Jesus prays for the unity of his church, the unity of his followers going forward. This is something he prays when he is about to be arrested and die. Like that's how important this was. 
But friends, something we often get wrong when we talk about unity is we we uh, confuse unity with uniformity. That all of us should look the same, talk the same, sound the same, believe the same, have the same interests, whatever else it might be. The Bible is not about uniformity, but it is about unity. That in our differences under the lordship of Jesus Christ, uh, we are united. And we don't have to look any further for a wonderful picture of that than Jesus's first disciples. You know the story. Jesus's first disciples. I want you to think here. Let's think about it this way. Jesus could have chosen anybody he wanted to be his first followers, to be the 12, right? He could have gotten the best of the best. He could have taken uh, the, the religious leaders. He could have gotten 12 people who were already friends, whatever else it might be. Yet Jesus decided that I'm going to take the 12, I'm going to choose 12 people that I'm going to spend the majority of my time with, and then I'm going to build the church upon, and I'm going to take people who culturally will never get along. So I'm going to take a fisherman. He, the fishermen are the low of the lows, right? The fishermen are the low of the lows. They're, they're not educated. They are at the bottom of the social rung. But then at the same time, I'm going to take a tax collector, Matthew. The tax collector stole from the fishermen. But I'm going to have them in my inner circle together. But let's make this a little bit crazier. I'm also uh, going to have Simon the Zealot. I'm going to have a zealot. But what a zealot wants to do is kill those people who are working for the Romans and kill the Romans, the occupiers, like the tax collectors. So you have fishermen who would hate tax collectors, tax collector who'd be stealing from the fishermen, a zealot who wants to kill a tax collector. That's Jesus's inner circle. And the question that always strikes me is why? Why would Jesus have done this? And friends, I think the answer is that Jesus is pointing us to a principle of unity. What does it look like when our identity as a follower of Jesus uh, supersedes everything else about us? Those things that divide us are no longer primary, but instead those things that unite us, basically our faith in Jesus, is what unites us. For Ray Ortland, he calls this beautiful and alluring community, the relational, and that there's real power there. We talked earlier about the divisiveness of our culture. For that reason, the the, the relational might be the easiest and most uh, attractive track right now of the gospel. Look at this community that's being built amongst all the division of our world. But is that the picture of the church right now? Is beautiful and alluring community our picture? May that be how we're described. May that be the picture of John 17 that we are living out. Well, coming up next, one of the things we like to do here on the show is to play short sermon clips of preachers uh, current and in the past. And with that in mind, I want to play a clip of Billy Graham talking about how to be happy. We're going to do that next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today on a beautiful Tuesday. I'm going to give it beautiful. A nice Tuesday afternoon. We're really glad that you are with us. Uh, One of the things that we like to do on the show, as I mentioned earlier, is... Uh, to bring on uh, clips of preachers. One of the, right, YouTube, is, let's use YouTube. YouTube is, uh, it's got its downfalls, its pitfalls. But one of the beauties is I would encourage you to go to YouTube and just type in short sermon clips. 
And you're just going to get some of the best preachers from today and from the past and these various things. And you could just be blessed. It's one of the best things about technology and about something like YouTube. And uh, so oftentimes I'll do that and I'll listen to some of my favorite current day preachers, Matt Chandler or Tony Evans or whoever else it might be, Alistair Begg. But also, it is fascinating to go back and watch clips of some of the older preachers, some of the pre- preachers from a generation ago. And maybe the most famous of those preachers is Billy Graham. Uh, Billy Graham was, uh, you know, America's pastor. He was the evangelist. He was doing crusades in which there'd be tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people. Uh, and I got to know the story of Billy Graham very much because I went to Wheaton College and Billy Graham is probably the most well-known alumnus of Wheaton College. And so literally the the vast majority of my classes when I was at Wheaton were at the Billy Graham Center. And if you live in the Wheaton area, can I encourage you to go over to the Billy Graham Center sometime because there is a museum. There's a Billy Graham Museum there. That is fascinating. You'll walk through his life uh, and his ministry. And I got I don't know if you out there ever had this opportunity. I had the opportunity to go to a Billy Graham crusade once when I was younger uh, in New Jersey. I believe it was at the Meadowlands. And uh, it's it was unbel- it was crazy. It was he's a dynamic preacher. And then there comes the time where they're singing just as I am and people are pouring down the aisles. And I know in recent years it's become somewhat in vogue to question Billy Graham's tactics of preaching or, uh, you know, was that really salvation or whatever? I'm just going to say Billy Graham did God's work while here on this earth and lived to be an old age. Uh, great biographies written about him. I'd encourage you to go uh, check them out. But Billy Graham, I found this clip today. He talked about uh, he was in Milwaukee in 1979. This is from Milwaukee in 1979 at a Billy Graham crusade. And Billy Graham was talking in this portion of the sermon about happiness. How are we happy? How do we how can we be happy? And all of us wrestle with that, don't we? Like, I want to be happy. I want to have a good life. I want to uh, enjoy life. I don't want to be stressed out. I want to have good things, whatever else it might be. Uh, for many, uh, the purpose of life is uh, to advance our own happiness. And Billy Graham calls that into question a little bit, but also talks about what does it mean uh, in light of eternity and in light of Jesus to be happy? Let's listen to what Billy Graham had to say. Nowhere in the scripture does it teach that you are to search and pursue happiness. You find happiness as you do your duty. You find happiness as you lead a disciplined life before God. You'll have periods of happiness. But God nowhere promises happiness is to be a goal in life. It's not a goal. Our goal is to obey God. Our goal is to do the will of God. Our goal is to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we move along, we will pick up happiness here and there along the way. If you sense a longing for God, a desire to change and be a new person, that's God speaking to your heart. And as you respond, he will give you the ability and the power to change because he has to do the changing. To delay makes the right decision harder. And indecision in itself is a choice. You decide tonight that you're going to wait till some other time. That's a choice away from God. And your heart gets harder, the Bible says. 
And the next time you have an opportunity to come to Christ, your heart may not be as ready as it is tonight. He can fill that cosmic void in your heart because that void in your heart is made because you're made in the image of God. And without God, there's a void there that only God can fill. Nothing else can fill it. Marriage can't fill it. Drugs can't fill it. Sex can't fill it. Alcohol can't fill it. Friendships can't fill it. The church even can't fill it. Religion can't fill it. But the person of Jesus Christ can fill it and can give you a brand new life from tonight on if you're willing to accept the challenge of Christ who loved you so much that he died on the cross and rose again and is alive tonight, ready to come into your heart and into your life. All right, first of all, Billy Graham, it's just an unbelievable preacher. Uh, that voice for will always be iconic, right? But he gets at something I think that we all wrestle with, that each one of us wrestle with. And that is where do we find happiness? Where do we find contentment? Where do we find joy? Where do we find purpose? Where do we find fulfillment? And he lists a lot of the major ones we go to, right? Is money going to make me happy? Is a bigger house, a new marriage, a, um, you know, a nice new car or my kid gets onto this baseball team or gets into this college, whatever else it might be. Will those provide me with ultimate happiness? They might provide me. They likely will provide me with temporary happiness. But Billy Graham's point is that we all have this craving for God and the eternal within us because we've been made in the image of God. And so therefore, the only thing that can satisfy us is a relationship with Jesus Christ. It is being made right with our heavenly father. It is the forgiveness of our sins and restored relationship with him that that will ultimately use whatever word you want, bring us happiness, joy, fulfillment, hope, whatever. That that is it. But yet we spend our entire lives, many of us, searching in all different places. If I could just uh, have more money, if I could just uh, date that person, if I could just get married, if I could just, if I could just, if I could just get this job, whatever else it might be. And then we get left going, I, I feel like I, I realized my dreams and I'm still miserable. I'm still searching. Uh, Jim Carrey, the the um, the actor and comedian Uh, And I'm going to get the quote a little bit wrong, but he famously said, I wish that everybody would get everything they ever dreamed about because then they would realize that that's not the point. And he's realized much of his dreams. He's rich beyond what any of us could probably a dream. He's famous. And he said, it's just not it. And we read those things over and over again. But here's the question as we listen to that Billy Graham clip that I want to leave you with. Where do you think you'll find fulfillment in your life? Where do you think that you will find happiness in your life? Not just temporary, not just happiness today, but where do I find happiness and joy, contentment and hope, purpose and meaning? We're challenged there by Billy Graham with the answer to that being in Christ. It is in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And in that relationship, it doesn't necessarily matter how much money I have, what job I have, whatever else, that I can be content and I can have the joy of the Lord. 
But here's what I know as someone who has been a Christian for a long time, been a pastor. Uh, I know that we say that, but, but a lot of us don't believe that. We really struggle to believe that. And that's why I wanted to put this in front of us today. What do you believe is the source of happiness? What do you believe is the source of contentment? Can you be content and joyful in Christ, even if life were crumbling around you? Or is your happiness, joy, and, and hope completely contingent upon your circumstances, the circumstances of your bank account and your job and your relationships and whatever else it might be? Hear the words of Billy Graham today, uh, but hear the words of Scripture, right? Rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. Paul wrote that while chained to a Roman prison. We can have joy today, not based on our circumstances, but based on who Jesus is and what he has done for us. And I pray that you will have that good news in your life today. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today on this Tuesday afternoon. And I'm thrilled to be joined uh, by a real friend of the show. He's a senior editor at Relevant Magazine, the co-host of the Cape Town podcast. His name is Tyler Huckabee. Tyler, how are you doing today, bud? Hey, I'm doing really good, Brian. Thanks for having me on. Oh, it's always a pleasure. We love when you come on. And uh, you've written some fascinating stuff over at Relevant Magazine. I'd encourage people to go to relevantmagazine.com. So like we like to do with you, I'm going to fly to a couple different places and let you kind of give us the background. And we'll see where the conversation goes. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, you wrote this, the dark side of all those new prayer apps. I know people, I know in churches, you hear about this a lot. Oh, a pr- an app to help me pray or whatever else it might be. Uh, so help us understand what is the dark side of these prayer apps yeah so the the dark side and i, and I suppose to be to be technical here if we're going to get be very very fair or maybe very charitable we call it the potential dark side of these prayer apps okay there's, you have a lot of apps out there right now that set up these online communities where you can uh, take and receive prayer requests these are apps like Pray.com is a really big one. Glorify is one. Hallow is a new one. Mm. And these apps do something that I think a lot of us really need, especially right now in a pandemic when many of our church situations are still a little bit in flux, where they connect you to other believers. And you can pray about things that they share with you and share prayer requests that you're going through on your own. And that's, that's, there's nothing wrong with that. I support like digital communities. And I think that can be really good for a lot of people. The dark side is like so many things we use online is the potential for these places to be collecting data on us. And when it comes to things like prayer apps, think about the things that people are sharing on here. You know, you could be sharing concerns about infidelity, or maybe you're sharing concerns about uh, about trying to have a kid or, or some things that the most intimate spiritual details of your life get shared on here. And you know the people that you're talking to, you know, these, you trust these people, but you don't know the, the businesses and companies that are behind mm. this that are maybe willing to, and are, that are collecting this data. That's the little box you check that none of us read when you sign into these apps. You know, <laughs> yes. they, they, take, they take that and they can legally then turn around and use that to market to you and hmm. tell these to third parties who aren't really concerned about your prayer life, but will want to push things, advertise products and other sites to you that might be, uh, you know, it's weird when you start blending 
advertising and marketing and prayer and spirituality. And that's just a new, very strange, very uncomfortable world that we don't really have a whole lot of, we haven't done a lot of thinking about what that could look like or how right. dangerous that could be. And, uh, and it's something that a lot of us just aren't really processing when we use apps like these. Mm, so what are the options? Can people uh, opt out of stuff or would you suggest people as, as much good as there is with a prayer app that maybe they're to be avoided? What would you suggest to people? Yeah, I think that there's a few options here. And I want to, and I want to be careful because, you know, do we know that this is happening? Do we have any, uh, do we have any, we, we, don't. And there was a there's a big report on BuzzFeed News. They did a lot of good work trying to investigate this. None of these apps wanted to respond to questions about how they were using this data. Not a great sign, but also not an admission <laughs> of guilt, right? Yes, so yes, yes. so if, they, if they're pleading the fifth, you can make your own, you can draw your own conclusions there. What I would recommend if I, if I were using these apps, honestly, and this I know this isn't going to be an option for everybody, but a paid app is probably going to protect your data better because they're not needing to sell that data then to third parties to fund themselves. So if you're paying for it for yourself, and also just make sure you're aware of what you're signing. When you, I know a lot of us, me, and I do the same thing. You just download an app, you click sure, and then you go through on it. It's worth knowing what people are doing, especially when it comes to these very intimate, very personal details that you're sharing in apps like these, because it, you, you want to be careful about where that, where that data is going and who it's being shared with, which in many cases are not going to be places that have your best interests at heart. That's a that's a good word. Okay, you I love a lot of stuff you've written, but what you wrote on January the 24th, uh this is so up my alley that I don't even I just want to know how it came about and then we'll talk about it. What your favorite band and youth group says about you today? Like the bands you listed are are, are like my growing up time. I was the youth group kid. Like I'm the target for this article that you wrote. <laughs> so what your favorite band and youth group says about you, how did this article even come to pass? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I, think, I think what happened, I think there was a couple of things. I think I just sort of like, I think I was just like posting online, like I was tweeting about it and it kind of, it kind of like took off a little bit. I was just tweeting about like, if you listen to this band and when you were in high school, this is who you are today. And people started chiming in and, and, and uh, I think it sort of, I was like, well, if enough people are interested, then maybe it could be a full article. And, uh, and then there was kind of somebody over at McSweeney's, uh, another site, a very funny, uh, site. McSweeney's did one that was kind of about what they called sad dad bands, like Delco <laughs> and, uh, and the national. And I was like, maybe we could do a, a Christian spin on that. Uh, so it, that was, it was a blend of those two things. And we got bands like, I mean, depending on what age you are, what age you went to youth group, Reliant K, Jars of Clay, Amy Grant, Kirk Franklin, bands that, that are certainly very important to me. And, and I, I'm, I'm friends with a lot of these guys. So I'm not trying to make anybody feel, you know, I'm not trying to target anybody. I'm not trying to get anybody canceled here. I'm writing most of these things kind of about myself, too. Right. So the, the finger's pointing back at me. I mean, I read your one about the Newsboys, which they were – I had myself some Newsboys albums back in the day. Sure. Uh, and you just started with you're not sure when everything got so political, but you missed the days when it wasn't. I'm like, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> so this is this is very fun. I just love Cademan's Call, who I did love. You're like – you're a you're Episcopalian now. <laughs> uh, it's good stuff, Tyler. I'd encourage people to go check it out at Relevant Magazine. All right. Uh, you also just wrote 
wrote, I believe yesterday, about Spotify sticking with Joe Rogan. And Aubrey and I did the story yesterday. Uh, but why do you think this is a big deal? What do you think is big about this culturally? But also, maybe if you could try to make connections, what's the important takeaways here for us as Christians and for the church? Sure. So I, I think people are probably mostly familiar with the Joe Rogan Spotify mm-hmm. situation. It's been everywhere. So I don't need to explain too much of it, probably. And you can go read about it on RogueMagazine.com if you if you want to. Um, but I, I think that there is I think that this is going to be important moving forward. I think that what you have what, what happened here is Spotify got into bed with a platform and in Joe Rogan's case with a person that they didn't really understand. Mm. Um, if, when you're just hosting music, you know, you can easily differ, you know, if, if a musician says something offensive in a song then you can say, well, we are just a platform for them. We don't really have any responsibility over that, which is true. I think that's mm-hmm. very fair. But when you're hosting a podcaster and when in Rogan's case, you're paying a hundred million dollars for exclusive rights, then you're a little more of a publisher. You know, you do have some sort of editorial responsibility in that case to make sure that you stand by what he's saying, or at least that you'd stand by his right to say the things that he's saying. Mm-hmm. No, obviously Rogan has a right to say the things that he says in this country. Nobody's arguing that he should have to, that he should go to jail or anything like that. Right, right? Right. He's not. And I know that there's a lot of conversation around cancel culture here. I don't think this is a great example of cancel culture mm. because he hasn't been, you know, he still has his show. He has a bigger platform than any of us will ever have for sure. I don't think that there's any real sense in which he's faced any serious repercussions here. We face some repercussions because I can't listen to Joni Mitchell on Spotify anymore. But that's <laughs> neither here nor that's neither here nor there. Uh, I think what what's important for Christians to be thinking about in this case is uh, is when you're defending some something like this and some of the very offensive things that Joe Rogan said, which were legitimately offensive. Uh, who who else who else is hearing you defend these things, and what yeah. might they think that you're actually defending? If you you might think you're just defending. Rogan's right to say these things. And that's very fair. I I don't think anybody should not have the right to say these things. But how is that going to be interpreted by other people who were caught in the crossfire and felt genuinely and rightfully very hurt by what he was talking about there? And how is that going to come across to them? I think sometimes we get so single minded in these little cultural spats that we get caught up in that we forget that we're being watched. You know, there are people who are seeing us and they're making judgments about what we're saying. It would be very, very careful and, and very thoughtful and very empathetic in how we talk about these things, because it can be taken a lot of different ways that we don't necessarily intend, but that have far reaching uh, impact beyond just the issue that we're talking about. That's a good word, man. That's really helpful as we all kind of wrestle with this. What do we think about this? I'd encourage people to go to relevantmagazine.com. And if you click it, even on Tyler's name, you're going to get all the articles. Tyler's written a ton. Aubrey and I just discussed, Tyler, your article yesterday uh, with Alan Noble and what it means to be oh, free yeah. in Christ. And you got stuff on there about Rich Mullins and Paris Hilton and Jimmy Fett, like all over the board, John Mark Comer. So I would encourage people, take some time today, go to relevantmagazine.com and click on Tyler's name uh, and check out all of that stuff. Again, Tyler Huckabee, Senior Editor at Relevant Magazine, also the co-host of a podcast called The Cape Town Podcast. Till next time, man. Thanks for spending some time with us. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Brian. Yep. You're listening to The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. My name is Brian Fromm. Really happy to have you with us today. There's been a lot of talk lately about can people our age still have 
friendships. Why does it seem that people in their, you know, uh, in their midlife, you know, their mid 40s seem to struggle having friends? And a lot of it has to do with busyness. Uh, so, you know, there's just a busyness. Our, our lives get kind of taken over by our kids and their stuff. Um, and so but but friendship is a, a an interesting conversation going on out there right now. And so at church leaders, I wanted to kind of move this ball forward over at churchleaders.com. Uh, Paul David Tripp. Paul David Tripp is a wonderful pastor and author, written some great stuff on parenting. Uh, so Google Paul David Tripp and parenting. If you have young kids, especially, I'd encourage you to do that. And you could you can read some great stuff. But he wrote over church leaders, seven trademarks of an unhealthy friendship. So he begins by reminding that uh, recently, earlier this month, he wrote about three trademarks of a healthy friendship out of Ephesians chapter four. So those three were working hard. Are you eagerly working hard to develop your friendship? Uh, number two, removing expectations. Where are you expecting to be served by your friend? How do you punish your friend when they don't meet your expectations? And number three, celebrating diversity. How often do we see diversity as a hindrance? How often are you frustrated and annoyed by the different strengths and weaknesses that your friend has? So uh, a, a relationship that works hard, removes expectations, celebrates diversity. Uh, that's a healthy friendship. Uh, and so Trip goes on to then look at the rest of Ephesians 4 and to ask this question, what are the trademarks of an unhealthy friendship? And besides me loving a good list, uh, it also is helpful for us to look at these trademarks and to go, okay, I might have these relationships in my life that feel toxic. They feel unhealthy. They feel uh, like like they're just not good for me, but I, I can't put my finger on it. Trip goes to Ephesians 4 and says, what are seven trademarks? to an unhealthy friendship. And so I thought it would be helpful for us just to look at these seven, these markers that he gives from Ephesians 4 and go, okay, uh, what do I have these in the, in my relationship? So number one, he says, the tendency towards self-indulgence. Verses 17 through 24, he says, lay out two warring kingdoms, the kingdom of self and self-indulgent versus the kingdom of Christ and self-sacrifice. Every day in your friendship, a battle will be fought on your heart. Will you allow the relationship to be driven by what you want, uh, he says, or by God's purposes? So that's how this is, is going to work. All right. So number two is the tendency towards deceit. Verse 25 says that we must speak honestly in our friendships, but because we are often driven by our own purpose and not the Lord's, we will be tempted to manipulate the truth to get what we want from the other person. This is one reason Jesus says, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So uh, this honesty, and this is a bedrock of a marriage, of a relationship, of a friendship. Do we, do we, are we honest with each other? Or are we do are we manipulative? The tendency towards deceit is a marker of an unhealthy friendship. Number three, the tendency towards anger. Verses 26 and 27, he says, quote, Psalm four, verse four, that it's not a sin to be angry. Uh, you should be righteously angered when a friend sins against you. However, sin comes into play and the devil gets a foothold when we attempt to control the relationship by venting our anger or by holding it over our friend's head to manipulate them. Is there a tendency towards anger? Is this other person, this friend in your life? Gosh, these could also just be a book about marriage right here too. But this is about friendship. Is there a tendency towards anger? 
Number four, a tendency towards selfishness. Verse 28 may feel hard to relate to at first. If you're employed or a hard worker and not a thief by definition of local law. So think about it more this way. How often do you protect or hold on to what you have rather than offer it to your friend in an effort to serve them? Are you selfish or is your friend selfish? Right. We're creating a picture here of a friendship that is unhealthy and destructive. Is it selfish? Is it self-serving? You know what? I want to get something out of this person. We've all been sadly in those relationships where it feels more, what can I get out of this person? What can I get out of this relationship rather than what can I give to this person? Number five, the tendency toward unhelpful communication. Verses 29 and 30, he says, warn us that rather than using our language to build others up, we tend to use words to ensure that we have this top spot in our friendship. Proverbs 18, 21 offers a more severe warning. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. How do they, how do you talk to each other? What's the communication like? Gosh, again, this could be about marriage. Uh, what is the communication life? Do we build each other up? Is it a healthy relationship in that way? Or is the, is the language used by my friend manipulative and one to tear it down? Number six, the tendency toward division. Again, verse 31 may feel unrelatable at first, especially if you haven't gotten to a brawl with your friend. However, it's much more common for us to view our friend as some type of adversary rather than a companion. Are you uh, in competition with this friend? Or, or can you be happy with them when they succeed? That's a difficult uh, question to answer, right? Because we all want um, we all want good things in our own life, and sometimes when other people succeed, it can make us feel bad about ourselves. But is that how you view your friends? Or how they view you. Number seven, the tendency towards an unforgiving spirit. The final verse in the chapter is the ultimate definition of a gospel friendship. Rather than want to make a friend pay for the wrongs against us, we should be the first to forgive because no one forgives more freely than the person who knows how much they've been forgiven in Christ. And Tripp goes on to end this way. He says, my three final thoughts on an unhealthy friendship. He says, after reading this, I typically respond with three emotions. Burdened by the call of the Christian life, overwhelmed with the amount of trademarks to remember, filled with regret over past sins. So here's what I tell myself and what I would tell you. Trip ends this way. There's forgiving mercy and empowering grace for every area of struggle in the Christian life. Number two, instead of trying to memorize or apply all the trademarks, just focus on one or two what the Holy Spirit convicts you of. And number three, God's timing is always right. I wish I could go back in time and pull words out of the ears of my wife, children, and friends. But in that moment, I was blind. God chose to reveal truth to me later on. Uh, and instead of trying to change God's timing, I f- should focus on what he has revealed to me today. And Trip ends this way. May God bless you as you take full advantage of his new morning mercies as you build a gospel-centered Friendship, such a good word. And here's another reason it's a good word, friends. It fits your marriage. That fits your parenting. Uh, that fits your work relationships. And it certainly fits your friendships. What kind of friend are you? What kind of friends um, are, are, what kind of people are your friends? Are they healthy or unhealthy? And if you find them to be unhealthy, have those difficult conversations with yourself and with them. Well, coming up next, as we close out the show, what can we learn from Olympic athletes and their hard work? We're going to discuss that next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. 
friends. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. How are you doing today? It's so good to have you with us. The Olympics are going on right now. Aubrey and I talked about that yesterday. Uh, she said that she actually likes the Winter Olympics more than the Summer Olympics, to which I said that is craziness. I actually find myself having a hard time watching the Winter Olympics, and it has little to do with the politics of it. I know some people who've said they can't watch these Winter Olympics because of all that's gone on uh, you know, in China with the Uyghur people and everything else, all of the stuff going on uh, with the Chinese government. And um, uh, but beyond that, or maybe that's the bigger deal, but even uh, apart from that, I should say, uh, I have a hard time simply uh, because I don't I don't enjoy the Winter Olympic sports. Uh, it's hard for me to watch um figure skating uh, my wife loves figure skating but anyway to each their own but what even if you don't enjoy the winter olympics you still have to be amazed by the level of athleticism and the commitment put in by olympic athletes uh, they have given in many ways their entire lives to this one event to this one week to this one whatever and uh it it's just unbelievable. You you watch the human interest stories that they'll play on NBC and you just go, man, I, I the dedication there is impressive. And over at New York Life, uh, they wrote this six life lessons that we can learn from Olympic athletes. So I've, I found this to be pretty fascinating. Just what can we learn that maybe we can apply a little bit to our lives that we see in Olympians. Okay. So what can we learn? So let's just run through this list of things that we can learn from Olympic athletes. The first one is bounce back stronger. It says, if there's anything the COVID-19 pandemic has taught us, it's that we cannot control the future. There'll always be obstacles to overcome. Uh, we talked about this yesterday with Michaela Schifrin and her, I, her falling the other day, but, but bouncing back stronger. And some of you need to hear that as we close out, trying to give you some encouragement. You've been knocked down. It could be health reasons. It could be financial reasons. It could be from the pandemic. It could be relational, whatever else it might be. But you feel like you've been knocked down to your knees. And what we learn from these Olympic athletes is there is a value in getting up. Right. Each of these skiers has fallen at some point. Each of these uh, figure skaters has fallen at some point and failed. But you get up. You wipe the snow off and you keep going. You do the next hard thing like we did, talked about last week. Bounce back stronger. Number two, know your limits. Pushing yourself is an integral part of being successful and ensuring continued growth. Taking care of yourself outside of your comfort zone is vital to development. But how far is too far? And they start to talk about Simone Biles from this past year's Summer Olympics where she pulled out of being the most famous gymnast, she pulled out of basically all of it, the vast majority of it, because she got, if you remember that thing called the twisties, uh, where she could really get hurt. And there, there comes a point where you have to know your limits. And so uh, how do we apply that to our lives? Some of you are pushing too hard. Some of you are running, burning the candle, both side, both ends, as the saying goes, and you are just running on fumes and you're going to crash. You've got to know your limits. Do what you can do. And then rest and get up the next day and do it again. Know your limits. Number three, stay positive and stay focused. 
not yet an Olympic athlete, but arguably the greatest sports success story of the year. British tennis player Emma uh, Raducanu rocked the sporting world by winning the U.S. Open. At 18 years old, she was ranked outside of the top 300 just a few months before. Uh, but it goes on to talk about how she got she got rid of the negative thoughts and she just kept going. She stayed positive and stayed focused. Right. When you're outside of the top 300, you might be like, I'll never be any good in terms of being a major champion. But instead, uh, look at your life ha- glass half full. Not everything is glass half empty, right? You might be faced with financial hardship, job loss, personal challenges, or thoughts can become rapidly negative. And uh, we can become fixated on our past mistakes. Uh, but athletes here at the Olympics, they can show us the huge advantages, right? Of visualization, of positivity, of belief, how these tools make us more positive, And therefore, that can help us perform better. Stay positive, okay? Not fake, but stay positive. Next, uh, on top of that, ask for professional help. Uh, when the most decorated Olympian of all time advocates for professional help, that being Michael Phelps, uh, it might be time to sit up and listen. According to U.S. economy, serious mental illness causes one uh, $193.2 billion in lost earnings each year. And the overall suicide rate has risen by 35% since 1999. So sometimes saying I'm not the, even if you're the most decorated Olympian saying I need help is the most uh, is the strongest step you could ever take. Some of you, uh, that's your next step is to say, I need help. Two more. There's no I in team. Whether you're embarking on a new business venture or becoming your own boss for the first time, you might think you can go at it alone. But the Olympics show us that even in individual sports, people need each other. We talk about this on the show all the time. As Christians, we believe deeply in the value of community, that we were never meant to go about this alone. We need people running the race with us to use the imagery of scripture. Who's your team, right? It's not about you. It's not just about you, but it's about the people around you. And you need people spurring you on to love and good deeds. And you need to be spurring other people on. They tell the story here for the world's top speed skater, Aaron Jackson. It took her friend and fellow teammate, Brittany Bowe, to help her to try to realize her dream of becoming the first black woman to win an Olympic gold medal, uh, speed skating medal. After Jackson slipped during the race, Bowe, who'd already qualified in a longer distance, showed her true team spirit and gave up her 500 meter Olympic spot to the world number one, her friend, Aaron. And the U.S. skating team is stronger because of it. And the last one, find the fun. Find the fun. Doing what you love and finding the thing that truly motivates you in life can be a great way to ensure success. But even if you're working a job that you once adored or take the or took the plunge and are pursuing your passions, it's easy to become overwhelmed with the desires to desire to achieve. Uh, But they said you need to find you need to pop that balloon every now and then and just have fun. Joke around. Have a good time. Those are really good. I find those helpful. As you're watching the Olympics this week, ask yourself, what can we learn from them? What can we learn from the Olympics uh, and then put some of them into practice? Also, over at the, at the uh, Gospel Coalition, they give us five Christian athletes to watch in the Winter Olympics. Let me just read them real fast. Eric Stahl, hockey player from Canada. David Weiss, freestyle skiing, half pipe, the United States. Elena Moore, uh, Elena Myers, Bob Sledder from the United States. Paul Schammer, biathlon from the U.S., and Nicole Hensley hockey from the U.S. There's lots of believers there, but I just, you know, you can go to the Gospel Coalition and check out their stories. Uh, it's uh, it's inspiring. So go enjoy the Olympics, but make some life lessons from them. Use it to challenge you 
as well. We're so glad that you are with us today. Hopefully, hopefully you have a great rest of your Tuesday. Aubrey will be back with us tomorrow uh, as we continue just trying to talk about what's it look like to live as believers in this world. What's it look like to be good Christ followers as we navigate the day-to-day of life. So look forward to that tomorrow as Aubrey rejoins us. But thanks for joining me today. As I said, we'll be back again tomorrow from 4 until 6 p.m. My name is Brian Fromm, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.